Uh, let me also welcome you to our, to our evening service. And as Brian rightly says, this is uh, the start of a new series. Um, it was announced this morning that it would probably be a very long series. Uh, we're aiming for eight weeks, so hopefully you can stick with us for, for that long. Many people find the Bible uh, a difficult book. A difficult book to read and in fact I wonder if if you were part of a book club let's say and uh, the book that particular month was the Bible and someone asked you what is the Bible about I think maybe a lot of us would struggle to succinctly give an answer to that question what is the Bible about uh, for many of us we're, we're maybe aware of what parts of the Bible are about and maybe we think that some parts of the Bible are just full of interesting stories, particularly our Old Testament tends to get thrown into that pigeonhole of being full of interesting stories. But what I hope comes across over these next eight weeks or so is that the Bible has one overarching message. It's one story from start to finish. And, and included in that one story are a number of messages, but there's one unified story from Genesis chapter 1 through to Revelation 22. And as Brian has already mentioned, it is the story of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. The Bible is not like any other book. It is scripture. It is the very words of God. It's described as being God-breathed. The words that have come from God's own lips. And so when we read the Bible, it is literally the case that God is speaking to us. But does that mean that we need a totally new set of rules for how we open up the Bible and read it? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired more than 40 different authors of Scripture, but he did so using those authors' thought processes, uh, preserving those authors' unique styles. And so to read the Bible, we need to read and understand it initially, certainly, as we would any other piece of writing. It says what it means. The authors, when they put these words on the page, they wrote them with clear aims in mind. And so when we come to read our Bibles, that's what we want to get to. What were they trying to communicate? And of course, the great difference between the reading the Bible and, say, reading War and Peace is that we don't just read it and say, well, now I know what's in there. It challenges us at every turn to respond. So we want this series to help us think more clearly about the Bible. There's different types of book in the Bible. Some are poetic, some are historical, some are letters, some are pro prophecy. How does it all fit together? Well, hopefully we can trace out the main storyline of the Bible and along the way help us all to understand what role these various parts of this book play. In our teaching services here in Hebron, our main approach is systematic, consecutive, expository teaching. That is, we tend to work our way through a portion of the Bible, maybe a whole book, and work through it from start to finish in that order, taking verse by verse. The theory, of course, being that we don't miss out the difficult bits, 
But we try and cover the whole counsel of God. However, another valuable way of studying the Bible, and it has some overlap with what we normally do, is to do what is called biblical theology. This is when we take a theme and we follow that theme as how it's developed through the scriptures. For example, you could trace the theme of sacrifice through the scriptures, again from Genesis to Revelation, or the theme of the word of God, or the theme of holiness, or the theme of God's dwelling place, and there's so many others besides. And when it comes to getting an overview of the big picture of the Bible, it's this sort of study that we need. So what theme is there that can help us that can help me to understand where each bit of this book fits in. One that I find helpful is the theme of God's kingdom. Let me make my case. Let me ask you a question. What were the first recorded words of Christ's public ministry? Were they words about loving one another? Were they words teaching us about prayer? They weren't. Here's how Mark puts it. Nerland's going to put this up for us on the screen. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God. Now let me break the rules of normal reading of a book and encourage you to turn to the last pages of your Bible. I should say spoiler alert. Um, I just want to read a few verses that show us what this kingdom ultimately looks like. So Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is near. And here's the finale of it all in Revelation 21, uh, the first few verses of Revelation 21. Uh, and again, this will be up on the next slide. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is how it all culminates. God's people dwelling with him, knowing the fullness of God's blessing. So what is the kingdom of God? Many have stumbled over this question. At its simplest, we could surely say the kingdom of God is the place where God rules, where God is king. But of course, we all know that God is sovereign. And that means that, well, there isn't, a, there isn't a square inch of this world where God doesn't reign or rule. But the Bible, when it speaks of the kingdom of God, it's a much more specific thing than that. It is where God's people willingly submit to God's rule. And you'll see that that's a repeated pattern in Scripture. Um, this is defined by one writer, uh, Graham Goldsworthy. This will be on the next slide. Um, he defines it like this. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. 
So we have just completed a series of studies in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which actually provides us with a great platform for for this Bible overview. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we find the basic design of God's kingdom. And you, you may have noted the similarities between those verses we read in Revelation 21 and what things were like in the Garden of Eden. God was with man. God dwelt with man. God creates man and woman, places them in his place, where they live in perfect fellowship with him. And so long as they submitted to God's rule, which was that they could eat any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would continue in their blessed condition with God. But then, of course, we came to Genesis 3, and it all starts to unravel, because God's people, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God's rule. They decide that they want to assert their autonomy, convinced that they know better than God, and so they disobey him. And what we saw in Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11 was just a tragic spectacle. Humanity had been created with such privileges. And now what are they characterized by in those verses? They're marked out by, by, by death, by hardship, by discord in all of their relationships. Adam and Eve, they break covenant with God and they're banished from access to God. The sad story of humanity is, however, countered with the powerful testimony of God's patience through it all. The abilities that human beings were created with, they used them to be utterly sinful, which is the sort of scene described before the flood. But despite humanity's sinfulness and tendency towards self-destruction, God keeps intervening. Intervening to bring stability. Intervening to restrain man's sin. Think of the terms of the covenant he made with Noah. Think of confusing the languages in, in Babel in chapter 11. You see that one of the major consequences of these things is to restrain man's sin. It's as if God is, is doing everything he can to patiently wait with man and prevent mankind from sending itself to the brink again. And so we have something of, of, of an outline of this. Uh, this will be on the next slide, Erland. Uh, when we come to Genesis 11, there's a, there's a genealogy. Uh, and it might seem like just a list of names. But it's in this list of names that we see God working. Because at the end of this list of names, there's a man called Abram. He's born. And God plans to again have his people in his place under his rule and blessing having that fulfilled through this man, Abram. And it's Genesis 12 that we're going to, going to have our reading from tonight, because Genesis 12 is a significant new dawn in God's great plan to establish his kingdom. It's there, uh, as that slide said, it's there that we find God promises his kingdom to Abram. So read with me in Genesis 12, uh, just the first four verses. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. We should not underestimate the importance of these verses here in Genesis 12. Uh, I have a quotation on the next slide from John Stott. He says of these verses, It may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. God promises Abram, whose name later becomes Abraham, that he will be the father of a great nation. God is going to prosper. God is going to protect with the great aim at the end, as it's put in verse 3, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it is not until the completion of the work of Christ that that part of the covenant made to Abraham is fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the descendant of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There are some very important things to highlight because it's very easy for us to think about Abraham as this God-fearing chap who God used mightily in his purposes. But that's actually to have things the wrong way around. Uh, later on in the, in the book of Joshua, Joshua reminds the people of their history with God. He almost does a Bible overview from his point of view. And he starts with Abraham. Uh, this is on the next slide from Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. What we're, what we're finding here is that the origins of God calling Abraham was not because Abraham was this good, God-fearing man. He was brought up to be a pagan. He was brought up in idolatry. Abraham has not earned his favor with God. God has intervened in grace. And this is what is so fundamental to grasping God's great salvation plan. It's this, that if God is going to establish anything with fallen humanity, it must be a work of his grace. Abraham responded to God's call. But do not look to Abraham for some, what was the redeeming thing that made God pick him out? It's precisely because, like the rest of us, he did not deserve God's grace. Otherwise, we need to call it something else. Grace is not grace if it is deserved. And you only need to look at, at the sort of weaknesses that a man like Abraham had to see that it's God's grace at work. Um, Abraham is the man who was willing to, to prostitute his wife in order to save his own skin, twice. He's the man who agreed to have, have a child with his wife's handmaid because it didn't look like Sarah, his wife, could have children. And you can even look at the godly line that came from Abraham too. They were sinners. They were weak. But this great plan of God's salvation is one of grace. God in his grace called them. God in his grace changed them. God in his grace used them. This is always the basis on which God's salvation is given 
and received. It's all of God's grace. You and I were as lost in idolatry as Abraham was. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you need to stop trying to earn your favor with God. It's all of his grace. There's no way for you to to build up yourself into God's good books. He doesn't operate like this. He looks on you in your sin and he says, my son has paid it all. Will you trust in him? What greater demonstration of grace could there ever be? Paul would put it like this. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. This big picture in the Bible is a message of God's grace. Next I want you to see God's consistency. The covenant God, he makes his promise with Abraham. And it is a promise that Abraham is not allowed to forget. Even if you were to flick over the pages of the book of Genesis, you would find God repeats the covenant to Abraham in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. Again and again, he repeats the covenant. These are more than just restatements of the covenant. They expand on what God is going to do. For example, if you were to turn to the example of Genesis chapter 17, Abraham at this point, he's, he's just shy of a hundred years old. And he's anxious that God's promise to give him offspring is just not going to happen. He and his, he and his 90-year-old wife are still childless. Should they hold on to this this promise that God has given that there will be offspring like the grains of sand on the seashore? Well, God comes and reaffirms in chapter 17 the covenant. He promises Abraham a son, Isaac, and he gives Abraham a sign, the sign of circumcision. And this was to be passed on from generation to generation. Every, every boy that was born uh, in Abraham's family on the eighth day was to be circumcised. And here they would have, through the generations, a perpetual reminder of the promise that God has made to Abraham. A perpetual reminder of their status before God, as well as a reminder of their obligations as God's people. When we saw the covenant made with Noah uh, a few weeks ago, there we were told that when God saw the sign of the covenant, the rainbow in the sky, he would be reminded of his promise. And it's very encouraging to think of that, that the sign of, this, of the covenant is something that works in two directions. Uh, so each one of us, when we see the rainbow, it is a reminder to us that God has promised never to wipe out humanity in that way again. But what an encouragement to think that it's a reminder to God. He looks on, he remembers his covenant, and he's faithful to it. And I could say as an aside, what an encouragement a Christian misses out on when they reject the sign of the new covenant. We've been told, you could read in Colossians 2, for example, that the sign of the new covenant is what? It's not circumcision. It's baptism. What an encouraging reminder to the Christian. And what an encouraging thought that God looks on when a Christian is baptized. The sign of the covenant. And he remembers the promises of the new covenant. 
Consider that um, tentative definition of God's kingdom that I gave earlier. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Look at how these elements stack up when we consider the emphasis of this repeated covenant to Abraham. Um, which on the next slide, uh, the references will be there if you want to, to note those. Um, we're told that Abraham's descendants would be God's people. Abraham's descendants would possess the promised land. Abraham's descendants would be blessed by God. You see, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And as we've already mentioned, that blessing would not be restricted to Abraham's line, but to all nations. We see God's consistency, his determination to maintain this course because the covenant is repeated after Abraham has died. Um, next slide is some verses from Genesis 26. This is God repeating the covenant to Abraham's son, Isaac. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. This is to Abraham's son. And then again, you'll find the covenant is repeated to Isaac's son, Jacob, over in Genesis chapter 28. Again, this is on the next slide. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And your offspring. Why have I gone to such lengths to repeat these, what seem like repetitious passages? Because God is consistent in holding to his word, in holding to his promise. He made the promise to Abraham, and after Abraham has died, do we then say, well, did God fail? Did God not bring about his purposes? Not at all. He repeats the promise, and he repeats the promise again. When God delivers his promise to establish his people, to establish them in his place and to bless them, he keeps that promise. The message of the Bible from start to finish is a message of God keeping his promises, of God delivering on the plan that he started in the beginning. Another key concept in working out his plan is God's sovereignty. Uh, there's some uh, examples where this really stands out. Uh, for example, there are numerous occasions where, where God overrules man's wisdom. Uh, and there are other ways and times where he preserves his people in unexpected ways. For example, uh, the story of Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, is an example of God overruling man's wisdom. Uh, Rebecca falls pregnant and she has twins and they are tussling inside her womb. She's perplexed by this. So she goes and she asks God what's going on. God explains to her like this. You'd find this in Genesis 25, 23. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. So already there's something unusual here. 
Normally, the, the older, even the older of two twins, would receive the double inheritance, would have the priority. But here we're told the older is going to serve the younger. So when it comes time for the babies to be delivered, out comes Esau first, and then comes Jacob. And in many ways, when you read that portion of, of the book of Genesis, Esau seems to be the better guy. He's more proactive. He's more naturally skillful. He's, he, he, he just seems to have so much more than Jacob. And so much is this the case that his dad, Isaac, prefers Esau to his younger twin, Jacob. And despite this word from the Lord that Jacob will be the stronger nation, that Esau will serve him, Isaac is determined that he is going to pass on the torch to his oldest son, Esau. But God had other plans. And despite Jacob's deceitfulness, the birthright comes to him. And God is able to take this man who is a rogue, he's able to turn him into the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. This is God's sovereignty, overruling man's decision, overruling man's wisdom. And again, it is God's grace. But for me, I think in, certainly in the book of Genesis, the epitome of God's sovereignty in preserving his people is the story of Joseph, which runs from Genesis 37 to 50. God spoke to Joseph in dreams, revealing that he would one day rise to a position of great prominence so that even one day his family would bow down before him. Perhaps foolishly, Joseph decides to tell his brothers this, and not surprisingly, it irritated them. Combining this with the fact that Joseph was their father's favorite son, they determined that they would just finally get rid of this nuisance. So they sold him into slavery, returned back to their father and told him that, their, that his beloved son was dead. And Joseph seems to just march off into obscurity. What hope is there for him? And in fact, we follow him. He suffers injustice and then finds himself languishing in an Egyptian prison for years. Forgotten about, but not forgotten by God. And in fact, God uses these horrible circumstances to do something wonderful. The Pharaoh of Egypt is having some bad dreams. And someone suddenly remembers the Hebrew chap in prison who God speaks to in dreams. So Joseph is brought to Pharaoh and interprets Pharaoh's dream for seeing that a famine is coming to the land. And so Pharaoh promotes Joseph from prisoner to prime minister. So that he can use his wisdom to prepare for the coming hardships. Now what has it all been working towards? Well the famine hits. The famine comes and the godly line of Abraham, they feel the pinch. So the sons are sent to Egypt to get food. And who do they come and kneel before and pay homage to but Joseph? They don't recognize him. And after Joseph tests them, he reveals who he is and brings his whole family down to Egypt to be with him. To have the plenty that they will need. And Joseph is a man of insight. He has insight into why things have turned out like they have. He says this to his brothers. Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. 
to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Why did God act to preserve Joseph through all of these hardships? So that he might ultimately preserve his people. So that he might ultimately fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so that he might ultimately fulfill the greater blessing of Jesus Christ coming into the world. To bring salvation for all. I want to draw things towards a close by mentioning one more point. And it's crucial really. I'm really eager for us to see that the Bible is a book written over a long period of time. But with a unified message. We are not to so compartmentalize the portions of scripture that we lose the continuity of the plan of God. And so much so that we must see that the means by which these patriarchs in the book of Genesis were made right with God, it was in essence the same means by which you and I are made right with God. I want to read you some, uh, some verses of how Abraham responded to God when he received the covenant, uh, I think for maybe the fourth time in Genesis 15. Um, uh, this will be on the next slide, I think, Ireland. Uh, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him, he credited it to him as righteousness. How was Abraham made right with God? How did he possess the righteousness needed to be right with God? Here it says it's by believing. He believed the Lord. His faith, his simple belief that God would do for him what he could not do for himself. If you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of that letter wants us to see that the way to be right with God has always been by faith. And if you have the NIV in front of you, you would see that from verse 8 of Hebrews 11, the successive paragraphs, they open like this. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. And he goes on beyond the book of Genesis. The writer to the Hebrews in giving his Bible overview in chapter 11. This is his unifying theme. It's by faith. It's by faith. God acts by grace through faith to bring salvation. This has always been his plan. This has always been his means. And this is still the way by which we can be right with God by faith in his son, the seed of Abraham, who has come to give eternal life. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Galatians, he has an application of Abraham's faith for us. Let me read you these words from Galatians 3. Consider Abraham, says Paul. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man 
of faith. I know that there are 66 books in the Bible, and here we are week one of eight, and we have only really mentioned one of those books. But the book of Genesis is so foundational for us. And what do we do when we come to the end of Genesis? We leave that book, and God's people, they are a small band, a single family in Egypt. They seem to be a long way off entering into the land of Canaan. They seem to be miles away from being this great nation that God has promised them to be. How are they going to get there? Are they going to get there? The point is, as we've read, as you read through the book of Genesis, and as we hopefully highlighted tonight, God has kept on promising this. God has kept on promising. And there have been times where it has seemed utterly unlikely, but here God steps in again. And you come to the end of Genesis 50, and it's a bleak scene, actually. I don't know if, you, uh, if you've ever glanced at this. There's such a contrast. The opening chapters of Genesis, man is made in God's image. God declares it to be very good. And you come to the end of the book of Genesis, and there you have, uh, so Joseph died at the age of 110, And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the the story of the book of Genesis. Man who was made in God's image, by the end of the book, he is in a coffin in a foreign land. What can God do with that? Well, we're going to see that God is going to build a kingdom. God has promised the kingdom. And he has exercised his grace and his sovereignty to bring us to this point. And we can be sure that he will fulfill what he has promised. And that is such an assurance. This is why it is so good for us to take time to do this sort of thing. Because we see God's consistency. And maybe tonight you're here as a Christian. And you feel as if you are so far away from what God would have you to be. You're so far away from being conformed to the likeness of Christ. You feel that that great gulf that is going to be going to be bridged when you see the Lord is so enormous that you want to be closing it. Am I even ever going to get there? Sometimes we wonder. Well, we can be sure because God has kept on promising to you. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. And isn't that the same sort of message that we're seeing as we go through this early, these early books of the Bible? God has made his promise. God has begun his good work. And he will surely fulfill it. And we're going to see that as we pick up the pace in the weeks to come. Of following God's dealings with his people. That he might ultimately, that he might ultimately build his kingdom. And draw people from all nations into it.